Friends, before we consider these, these words together in Acts chapter 20, please bow with me in praying as we look to God to speak to us this morning. Heavenly Father, the God of your people, the God of your children, you're the one who has brought your creation into being by your word. You are then the God who has brought spiritual life into the hearts of your covenant community. So you are the God we appeal to now to speak to us at this moment in power and might and salvation. Lord God, we pray that as we study these words just now, that it would not be the musings of man that are heard. We pray that you would proclaim a greater sermon than has been prepared by man. And we pray, Lord God, that you would address us. Lord God, we long to have your comfort and your challenge and to know the change of your, your grace. And so we ask that you would deal with us in a way that is fitting for each of us today. And we pray, Lord God, as we continually do, that you would bring salvation to some we know that throughout history, throughout Scripture, throughout church history, you have used the preaching of your Word, which seems folly to the world. You have used it, Lord, by your Holy Spirit to make Christians, to make people alive. And so we ask, Lord God, that that would happen just now for perhaps some in this very room but perhaps for some who are tuning in just now or later on, we pray that you would open their eyes to see how sinful we are and how we need the Lord Jesus Christ if we are to be made alive. Lord, we pray these things. We plead with you for help, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, as I mentioned in a, a previous sermon, I think just a couple of weeks ago, um, I, I, upon taking this role here as minister, I am acutely aware that uh, St. Peter's is a, a very, very diverse congregation. I think I said that uh, not so long ago, a couple of weeks ago. It's true, though, is it? not? It's quite a diverse group of people we are. Certainly theologically, we're from right across the theological spectrum. So, uh, I'm speaking to some who were, at least formerly, at some stage, Anglicans and Independents and Pentecostals and Charismatics, some folk from the Church of Scotland, um, some Baptist folk. The list goes on. It's quite a lengthy uh, list. And so I think that because of this rich, rich array of theological backgrounds, I think there's probably a question that is asked at St. Peter's more frequently than it is asked at other congregations and other uh, congregations certainly within the Free Church of Scotland. So what's the question that's perhaps asked more commonly here is this, why do we do things the way that we do them? 
I'm sure that question's been asked a few times. Think about the vacancy, people. Now, why do we do things the way we do them? Think about not just the vacancy, though, but think about the, the worship service itself. Why does St. Peter's do things? Why do we do things the way that we do it? Why do... It's a good question, isn't it? Why am I not decked out in clerical robes, for instance? Why are there no smells and bells? Why all of this preaching uh, and word ministry in the life of the church? Why does St. Peter's do the things that we do? Well, this morning... We're coming to a well-known portion of Scripture. It's well-known, isn't it? Where Eutychus uh, falls to his death. But as we study this portion of Scripture, what I think is going to emerge is not a sermon about the perils of falling asleep uh, through preaching, although I'm sure you're all with me that you wouldn't want to be sitting on the balcony uh, today, I'm sure. So what will emerge from this is not a sermon about the dangers of falling asleep and preaching or the dangers of a preacher going on for too long. No. What will emerge from this portion of Scripture is perhaps quite surprising. What emerges are a number of answers to that pertinent and relevant question for our congregation. What we will see here, certainly in regard to corporate worship, is why we do the things the way that we do them here at St. Peter's. We'll see some of that here in this text. So, as always, can can I please invite you to have Holy Scripture open in front of you, whether that's a a copy of Scripture or on your phone or tablet or whatever it might be, to have Acts chapter 20 there in front of you. And the first thing uh, we need to consider here is the hearing of the Word. Everyone with me? The hearing, the hearing of of the word. Okay, now, as the section begins from verse 1, we're told, aren't we, of this uh, lengthy journey that the Apostle Paul takes from Ephesus to Troas. So, we're all told at the beginning of the chapter of that journey. Then we're told, you'll see it there from verse 7, of what happens when Paul arrives in Troas, really. So we're told almost what seems to be, actually seems to be a regular gathering of the church for worship, and it's almost like the Apostle Paul is coming in as the guest preacher in Troas, like he's the guest preacher for the day. So we've got the journey, and then we get an idea of the practice, but it really, friends, it's actually when the church meeting took place that I want you to to notice with me. So would you do that? Would you look at verse 7? What does it say? When do they meet? Do you you see? We're told on the first day of the week, on the first day, first day of the week. Now, that idea, first day of the week, that could mean, ah, could mean a couple of different things. We know that, do we? So we know that in the ancient world, first century world, there was a couple of ways of reckoning time. So there was the Jewish way of understanding time. So what would that mean? First day of the week, if it was the Jewish way, it would mean that was a Saturday. So there was a Jewish way of understanding time. There was also, though, the Roman way of understanding time. And that would be that this was a Sunday. Now, what we see, if we had read through the book of Acts together, which we didn't do, but if we had read through the book of Acts, what we would have seen is that the author, Luke, 
that he, what do we see? Where do we see it? So he says, Paul, he says, rather, Peter and John, they go to the temple at the ninth hour. What we see is that Luke tends to favor the Roman way of reckoning time. So is everybody with me? What's happening here in Troas? So on the first day of week, the people of God, they're getting together, and they are getting together for corporate worship on a Sunday. Now, hang on. I wonder, if we, for a moment, consider the full spread of Scripture, do we recognize, do you recognize how significant this moment is for the whole breadth of Scripture? Do do we realize, ah, we're coming to Acts 20 out of the blue, do we see how important it is? Let me read this to you. Somebody else writes this. I want you to listen to it. So what you've got in your hands right now, Acts 20, is the very first unambiguous evidence for the Christian practice of gathering together for worship on a Sunday. Does everybody appreciate how significant it is? So this is Acts 20, but this is the very first time we're seeing clearly that that Christian community in the first century, first century rather, they moved away from Jewish practice. And so they're saying, these Christians, they're saying, well, no, we're different. We're different. We're going to worship on a, on a different day, something that, that we see in other points in the Bible subsequently, don't we? And something we see throughout church history, and that is the people of God coming together on a Sunday to worship him. Okay, fine. I've got a question. The question is, why? I wonder if the younger people in the building, the kids, if they could listen to this question. Why a Sunday? Why not? They're distancing themselves from Jewish practice. So not a Saturday. Why is it not a Tuesday afternoon that they meet together in Troas? Why is it not a Wednesday morning? Do we understand? I think everyone in the room, I'm sure, understands the reason why. The church met together like this in Troas. Why? Because of what we read, friends, in Luke chapter 24. Please listen to it. That on the first day of the week, the women, they went to the tomb of the Lord Jesus Christ and they found it empty. That's it. Why do we meet together on a Sunday morning, Sunday evening? Why? Because the Lord Jesus Christ has risen from the, the dead that throughout the centuries, the church of Jesus Christ have met on the first day of the week. Why? Because 2,000 years ago, in a cold tomb, a dark tomb, God worked. The Father raised the Son to life and his heart began to beat and blood began to flow, was pumped around his body. Isn't that correct? We meet on a Sunday because it was then that Jesus Christ is risen. Or think about this, that just as the Apostle Paul shouts here of Eutychus, what's happening right now throughout the world? Think about it. Just as Paul shouts here of Eutychus, So the church throughout the globe, Sunday by Sunday we gather and we declare in corporate worship, do not fret, he is risen. Do not worry, do not be afraid, he is risen, he is risen. Now when you think about that, this biblical mandate that we've got in Acts 20, do you not agree that it's very important that we keep this practice on a Sunday squarely in view in the life of the church. You're with me. It's such an obvious thing for a minister to say. But the last 12 months have been really tough 
in the life of the church, haven't they? An obvious thing to see. But the last 12 months because of this pandemic have been really very difficult, not just for St. Peter's, but for all number of congregations. Now, hang on. As we emerge from some of these restrictions and we come out and it becomes, doesn't it appear a little bit more like normal today like this? But as we come out from some of these restrictions and as we look today at the church in the West, what are we seeing? Is it not true that as we come out of lockdown, what we're seeing is something of a newfound apathy for corporate worship? Isn't that right? I'm not talking so much about St. Peter's, but if we look at other churches and look at the situation more broadly, a newfound apathy towards gathering together on a Sunday. Now, we've got to be very, very careful with that. Of course, I understand, you understand, that there's some people with very good reasons and health concerns, and they, they simply cannot come out, and maybe perhaps ought not to come out. That's, that's fine, but there's the other side to it as well, and what we see is a growing apathy, a growing reluctance from some who could be out of church, could be here to worship God, and are simply, not, are simply choosing not to do so because there's live streams and because there's videos and, and, and so forth. Well, friends, should we not allow this biblical mandate, should we not allow what we see here in Scripture today to come into our own hearts and shatter that apathy. I wonder what you would say to me if I was to ask you why the church service is so important. What would you say to that? Would you say, it's because, Andy, we're commanded to do this. Yes. Why is the church service so important? What would you say? Would you say, because it's actually, when we gather bodily like this, it's supposed to be a little picture, a little taster of what it's going to be like in heaven around the throne. Would you say that? Yes, absolutely. What else would you say? Why is the church service important? Would you say, because it's part of our identity. We are the called out ones, the ecclesia, the assembly before God. Yet, all of it true. But consider Acts 20. Why is the church service important? As Christian friends, we get to get to come together like this on a Sunday, on the first day of the week together, and we get to worship a risen Lord. We see here the hearing of the word. Second thing we see here, though, is the importance of the word, the importance of the word. So we've seen that the church in Troas, they get together, there's this worship service, it's on a Sunday, and it's prescriptive for the church. Let's get to the miracle. Let's get to Eutychus, shall we, been raised for the dead. And if you're, I don't know, if your eyes are feeling heavy this morning, you're struggling already, I'm, I'm going to caution you as well, because you know what will happen if you, if you drift off I will use you as a sermon illustration this morning. So, so please don't fall asleep, friends. Now, let's think about Eutychus. Can I ask you, do, do you feel in a little bit sorry for Eutychus? I mean, I, I feel sorry for him. The first thing you have to appreciate about Eutychus is that he is just a boy, in a sense. Make sure that we have that right. So the word that's used there of Eutychus, it could be that he's a slave, but much more likely is the idea that he's just a lad. So he's just, you know, between the ages of sort of eight to 14, that's what we're dealing with. That's Eutychus. He's just a, a young bloke here. And then you've got a picture of where he is. He's in this large room, but it's crowded. 
Okay, and it's, it's a stuffy room. Did you notice some of the details that emphasize that? The fact that there's lamps on. Do you see what it means? It's, it's crowded, it's smoky, it's hot, there's not much oxygen in the room. And you can see what happens. He's perched on the windowsill there and he gets the sermon nods, doesn't he? As, as Paul goes on, the eyes get heavy and, and, and eventually he, he, go, he falls. And look at that detail. He falls from the third floor, this boy. Let me be blunt about it. He is dead. He's not just, it does not just appear as though he's dead. And he's not just unconscious or concussed. He's, he's, how can I be so adamant about that, that he's dead? Because we learn in these verses that Luke, the author, was present at this event in Troas, and what was his profession? You see it? We have eyewitness detail, eyewitness testimony from a doctor at this point. So this guy, Eutychus, this boy, he is, he's dead. He, he is as dead as dead can be. And then what happens? We'll come back to it. But in the manner of Elisha, Elijah, you see what Paul does? He stretches himself out he stretches himself over, he stretches himself across Eutychus, and by the power of God, Eutychus is brought back to life. Now, a question for you, one for each of the points today. The question, in a sense, is the same as before. Why? Why? I've been scratching my head all week about this. Why here? I mean, do you see the, the question? You think about it. Throughout the, the process of the early church and in Paul's missionary journeys, people would have died all the time. People in the church were passing away all the time. Why is it that here someone is raised to life? Like, what is the message behind this? Like, you're, you're all with me, aren't you, that resurrection miracles are not all that common throughout the New Testament and through the advance of the, the church. They're few and far between. You see the question, why? Why, in the wisdom of God, it's not just to show that the power of Christ is continuing. Why here? Why Eutychus? I want you to, to hear this because it will, I think, sound strange. But you stick with me. Part of the reason for this miracle is to underline for us the importance of preaching. I'll say it again. It may sound strange. Part of the reason that Eutychus is raised to life is actually to underline for the New Testament church from this point forth the importance of preaching. Are you asking, you're scratching your head at that, saying, well, why? But did you not see how preaching is emphasized in Troas? I mean, do you not, do you not see it? I mean, think about it for a second. There would have been any number of other elements in that worship service. Don't you think so? Paul arrives. They all gather together. What are they going to do? There's going to be singing to God, isn't there? Don't you think? There's going to be, there's, they're going to pray to God and ask for blessing. None of that's mentioned. 
The only things that are mentioned, if you notice it, are the breaking of bread and preaching. And then everybody in the room, when when David came up to read this, everybody noticed the extent of the preaching, (laughs) right? How you, you, you good folk, you get off lightly in a sense. Isn't that right? How long does he preach for? He preaches for hours, Preaches right through to to midnight and beyond. Do you see everything in this portion of Scripture is pointing to the preaching? And when you see that, surely you recognize why the resurrection or how the resurrection of Eutychus, it underlines that emphasis. If you do not see it, I would ask you to transport yourself to that room. Because it's easy to read it. Imagine what it was like. I mean, you're there and you're listening to the Apostle Paul and there's a scream, isn't there? Now you imagine maybe the, the mom or the dad or the siblings of Eutychus are there and they realize what's happened. Imagine the, just the, the way the anxiety and stress just flows around that room and the panic. And what did they do? I mean, that room empties quickly, doesn't it? I mean, and they, they come down the spiral, you know, three stories. They, they come down, they gather around Eutychus, and, and he's dead. And then Paul takes charge, <laughs> and he lies over, he brings him to life. Now, here we go. Here's my question for you. What do the people do next? Look at verse 11. What happens next? Do you see it? He, Paul, and they march back up the stairs. (laughs) After this miracle, they walk back into the room, they take their seat, and they listen to the Apostle Paul preach and preach through to the break of day. One commentator says this, and I think he's true. He says the centerpiece of this account is not actually the miracle. The centerpiece of this account is the public proclamation, the preaching of the Word of God. And and because of that, I want to say this to you this morning. I know very well that sometimes in the life of the church, and maybe especially in Reformed worship, there can be the desire for something a bit more exciting. There can be a desire for the extraordinary and the dramatic when it comes to our times of worship, that desire can especially come in Reformed churches. Why don't we at St. Peter's have healing meetings? Why don't we have a bit more drama? Why is there not more spontaneity in the worship service in a Reformed church? Why don't we try and raise the dead? Isn't that an amazing thing to do that? It's a bit worrying, isn't it? The drama and excitement of a worship service. You see, you always have to be on your toes. I will continue, and hopefully something won't fall on top of me as I do. But it's true though, isn't it? There's sometimes there can be, we, we've heard that question before. Why isn't there more excitement? Why isn't there more drama? Why is it? So stayed, do we ask? Do we say, why is it so regimented like this? Why don't we try and raise people from the dead? Isn't that an amazing thing to consider that even when the apostolic church did have power to raise the dead, even when they had that power at their fingertips, their focus was not on that, but on the preaching. Isn't that amazing? 
Even when the apostolic church can see the power of God raise Eutychus to life, they are not focusing on the dramatic. They are not focusing, not crying out for the extraordinary. They are focusing here on the thorough exposition of Scripture. And because of that, yes, I appeal to you as a church that we treat corporate gathering for worship with new esteem, but I would implore you to please pray for the preaching of the Word Sunday by Sunday. Pray not just for whoever it is that's here. That's not what I'm talking about. I would implore you to pray for yourselves and your family and for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Pray that we would come to this place with a new expectation and eagerness that God would give us receptive hearts in the preaching. Because I don't know about you, but the longer that I'm in Acts chapter 20, I begin to think that there's two miracles in Troas. There's the miracle of Eutychus, but there is also that miracle of a congregation that is desperate to hear the preaching of the Word of God. So we see the hearing of the Word, the importance of the Word. Third thing is the function of the Word. Um, when I was in London, I, uh, I heard that British people are backwards. I remember that comment. What was our uh, stereotype? Was it last Sunday night? The stereotype that was Scottish people were quite reserved. That's what we looked at. Well, I also heard that we were uh, backwards. Now, that's not true of you, of course, if you're a Brit. Uh, I'm beginning to think it is a little bit true of me, uh, because what I want to do at this point is actually to go backwards to the beginning of the chapter. So, can I ask you to do this? Can I ask you just to skim over those first six verses. Just skim read it. Just have a look at it. Now, even if you skim read it, you're with me that there's an amazing amount of detail, some great names and some great places, lots of detail. So we're told that Paul leaves Ephesus. We're told he goes to the Macedonian churches, Philippi, Berea, spends a lot of time there. Then he, he moves south, he goes to Greece, you know, he goes to Corinth. Now, I want to ask you, what is he doing as he travels around here? Now, Paul's visiting a lot of places. What's your inclination? What is Paul doing? Because if you're thinking he's planting churches, he's not so much doing that at this point in time. Paul has already planted churches. He's not, what he's doing is he is engaging in a ministry of encouragement. A ministry of encouragement. Can I ask you just to look at verse 1? Let's look at it. Look at verse 1. What does it say? Uh, Paul sent for the disciples, and then after what? Encouraging them. Look into verse 2. So he traveled through the area, speaking words of, oh, encouragement. Fast forward to the very end. We, we can look at other ones, but fast forward to verse 12. Uh, the people to the young man home uh, alive, they were greatly comforted. That's the same verb, same word as the encouragement. So to, do you see what's going on here? So beginning, you know, a number of times, right through beginning and end, this, this, it's all about encouragement. This, this missionary journey at this point is all encouragement. Now, I wonder if you would agree with me on this, that what we have there is surely one of the primary needs of the church in St. Peter's and one of the primary needs of the church 
today throughout Scotland, I doubt anybody is going to argue with me that we as a people need divine comfort and we, as we come out of this lockdown to a new chapter, we need divine encouragement. Is that not a great need for St. Peter's? Now, in light of that, you need to understand that that word there, encouragement, literally, literally it's this, many words, or much speaking. Is everybody with me? Does everybody see what's happening with the Apostle Paul? You've got an example of it in Troas. But what's Paul doing? He's traveling around to all of these churches and he is encouraging them how? With the word. Through the word. How does encouragement come? Paul is traveling around and he's building up these believers. You see it through us. He's building up the believers. He's bringing comfort to believers and he's doing it through preaching. Through the ministry of the word. Now, I think that is vital for you and for me to appreciate because you know what we're like because of our sin. When we need comfort and encouragement, we tend to go everywhere else. I mean, it's true of us, surely, that sometimes we run after where the world looks for comfort. Isn't that right? Where does the world look for comfort? Booze, sex, relationships. Maybe if we're honest, some of us are looking there for comfort. But maybe what about in the life of the church? Where do we look for encouragement ourselves? We look to each other for encouragement. We look to maybe Christian songs, hymns for encouragement. Some of that's brilliant and some of it's great, but we need to understand, we need to hold tight to the fact that the primary means that the Holy Spirit uses to encourage the church is through the preaching of the gospel. The primary means that God uses to encourage you is the ministry of the word. When we see that... Surely we have to ask ourselves, why on earth would we ever miss a Sunday? I mean, you see the logic. If we desperately at St. Peter's need encouragement, and if the Holy Spirit primarily provides that encouragement through the preaching of his word, why on earth would any of us prioritize anything out there over being here to look to Christ Jesus? Friends, we have to be here Sunday by Sunday not just to worship the risen lamb. We have to be here to receive from the Lord Jesus Christ that encouragement, that comfort you desperately need to live for him. And then the last thing. So we've seen the hearing of the word and the importance of the word, the function of the word. The last thing is the accompaniment uh, to the word, the accompaniment to the word. So as we go back into that meeting in Troas, I think, again, I've just got to stress to you what you already recognize, and that there was a a lot of things going on in there. There was prayer, there was praise, there was perhaps also a collection for the poor as well for the other believers. There was a lot of other elements. Now, because of that, you and I ought to, we ought to make note of what else on top of preaching is underlined by the Holy Spirit. So, would you Would you look at verse 7? What else is underlined? Preaching is emphasized. There's lots of other things that are not mentioned. But we are told, verse 7, on the first day of the week, the church came together to break bread. Everybody understands, do we? That whether it's in the context of a meal or not, 
that this church celebrated the Lord's Supper. This church took part in communion. Now, we begun the service, didn't we, saying, asking the question, why do we do things the way that we do them? And if there's anything that the world outside or anything that the city of Dundee would find incredibly strange about St. Peter's, I'm going to suggest they might find a lot of things strange about how, how we do things, but the number one thing they're going to find strange is what we're about to do in a moment. Don't you agree? And then a second or two, we're just going to pause together. Think about how strange it is from the world's perspective. We pause, we stop, there's silence, and we're going to receive tiny little bits of bread, and we're going to receive tiny little bits of, of wine, all in a socially distanced setting, of course. But if you're out in the world and you're stranger at the church, you're looking on, you're thinking, you're scratching your head, thinking, this seems odd, this seems strange. So why do we do it? Why did the people in Troas, why did they gather together on the first day of the week to break bread? Well, yes, the obvious thing to say is that they did it because they were commanded to do it by their God. I mean, essentially, that's what's going on here, isn't it? Christ in his ministry amongst us, he instructed his church, what's the time frame? Until he returns and through a symbolic meal, Christ wants his church to remember that he has died, not that Christ came amongst us and preached good news to the poor, did a few miracles and disappeared or ascended immediately. No, the very son of God, what happened? But he bled and he suffered and he died, he expired. But actually, as we end, what I want you to linger on is the relationship between these two things that God highlights in Acts chapter 20, the relationship between the preaching and the breaking of bread. I I want you to appreciate this morning, friends, that these two things, the preaching and the sacrament, they belong together. Did you know that we never, ever, in Reformed circles, we never celebrate the sacrament without the preaching of the Word? And maybe if you're a Christian this morning, you see why that is. We need preaching so that we understand what sort of death our Lord has died for us, that we understand something of the nature of what Christ that we has done. We, we understand that this was a death like no other, wasn't it? An atoning death, a vicarious death in the sense that it was for you, that it was a sacrificial death, a sacrifice at Golgotha, a sacrifice for your sin. And when we see that linger on it, surely as we consider coming to the table, our hearts are filled with gratitude because what happened at Calvary? Friends, that was a death. It was part of a redemptive work that has brought you today life in Christ. Life! In fact, as we close, I would I would encourage you to consider Eutychus. It is a sense like you're looking in a mirror when you look at Eutychus, isn't it, spiritually speaking? Because what were you? What happened to you, Christian friend? That you had fallen. And spiritually speaking, Christian friend, you were as dead as Eutychus. Spiritually speaking, no life you consider it, what has Christ done for you? 
And that cross and in his redemptive work, the Lord Jesus Christ has identified with you. He's laying over you, hasn't he? The Lord Jesus Christ in his redemptive work has secured spiritual life from you. And now, what is your status as you come through the doors in this first day of the week? Your status? Do you appreciate that the angels in heaven at this very moment, they can point to you, Christian friend, and they can say the very same words that Paul said of Eutychus, the angelic beings, they point at you and they say, he's alive. They point at you and say, she is alive. And alive because of Jesus. Alive today because of his work, his cross, his resurrection. Friends, the question we've asked is, why do we do things the way we do? I hope you appreciate we do what we do because of our Lord and Savior. We do it because of Jesus. We do it because of his work and his word. We do things the way we do at St. Peter's because Jesus Christ has done everything necessary for our salvation. So, last question. Are you a Christian? I don't mean do you have some nominal understanding of God I mean, are you resting in Jesus Christ today for your salvation? If so, you know, don't you, very soon we'll gather corporately together in heaven. Together bodily we will gather. We will have a, a meal, a banquet. But until that moment, where does Christ Jesus want you? He wants you here to worship him. And he wants you at his table if you're a Christian, friend, come today to the table. Worship the risen lamb. Worship the lamb who was slain for you. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you for the amazing miracle with Eutychus. We thank you that there is great power available to the New Testament church we thank you for that. We thank you, though, Lord God, that you are the God who makes alive. Lord, you control our lives, but spiritually, you are the one who can bring those who are dead to life through your great work, through your Spirit. Lord God, we do pray uh, that you would help us as we consider the table. Help us as your people to remember what has been done for us by the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.